welcome to Tripping Over the Barrel, a series that highlights the unique personalities within the oil and gas industry and the stories they have to share with your hosts and lead storytellers, Tilo and Dr. Funkenstein. No more Texas Tech, Tim. We're shifting over to Aggieland. I, I, that's, that's right. I can't believe in the pre-show that you insulted this man by accusing him of being from Tech. I didn't. I was quick I to correct that. He, I actually did that before with him. For some reason, I thought Ryan Tart, who EAG guy and good friend of Collins, right? College roommate. Uh, I thought that for whatever reason, he went to Tech. So I accused him in person of Tech. And then I just copied and pasted your questions to Joe. And I saw Texas something, so I didn't edit it. But I was kind of aware of it, too. I'm like, ah, oh, he got that, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, as, uh, Ag- as Aggies go, we're quick to correct that mistake. 100%. I mean, they're, they're very different schools, right? I mean, I've got I've to guess. Like, to the outsider, it's like, ah, just two more big schools that are good at football, kind of in the middle of nowhere. But, like, really, they're very different schools. They're very different schools. I think you'd be surprised at the difference in size between the two of them as well. A&M's bigger? A&M's significantly bigger. Interesting. Interesting. But, you, know, it, you know, and we're fiercely loyal, like, like Texas Tech grads are as well, but we're probably a little bit more famous for being that fiercely loyal. Indeed. Indeed. Well, anyways, guns down today. We're, we're taking it over to Gigam Land with Colin Plack. Colin. Love your story. Right. Love, love how you ended up in Denver. Want to dive into the rigs to real estate piece. Understand what it's like raising a young family uh, with your hand in various buckets. Um, the very quick exit. What was that? 11 months? You were at a company for 11 months that went from nothing to selling for $1.5 billion. I yes, want to sir. dive into that a little bit too. But why don't you take us back to the beginning? Where are you from? Um, How did you get into oil and gas? And let's get to know you a little bit. Yeah, so I grew up in Plano, Texas, and, um, you know, right around high school time is when I kind of figured out that I wanted to go into engineering, math, science. It came pretty easily to me, and it was something I was always fascinated by. And I also had a, a friend growing up whose dad was a petroleum engineer, always traveling the world, going to really cool places. They obviously did pretty well for themselves. You know, they had vacation homes, boats, and stuff like that. So I was like, okay, this guy gets to travel. And... Um, you know, experience all that, but at the same time, make a good living out of it and provide yeah. for his family. That sign, was, me uh, sign me yeah, up. Yeah, I was like, sign me up. So I, wanna, um, I don't yeah. hear a lot of cool places in traveling oil and gas. You get to go no, to places, you know, he's a big Baku fan of and places like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, so obviously, when I say cool, I mean it's cool for the oil field. You know, <laughs> Norway, um, Norway, Canada, the South America, that type of thing. So. Yeah. Uh, places, you know, growing up, growing up in Plano, Texas, places that sound cool because it's not Plano, Texas, right? <laughs> no, Are you exactly. uh, Plano Senior High or Pesh or what? I went to Pesh. Okay. Slang, yeah, that's I'm Plano saying. East for you, Jeremy. That's Everybody right. knows that. Everybody knows that. <laughs> so what, what, got you, what so, took you to A&M then? Uh, really, you know, so uh, had an average GPA out of school. You know, I didn't really apply, you know, in hindsight, really apply myself as much as I could have in high school. So average GPA, but really good SAT score. And that's what really got me into A&M. I did not get into UT. Um, I think 
you know, Texas Tech, I got an acceptance letter before I applied there, but uh, that was a a dig. Before we were recording earlier, we were were talking about Texas Tech and kind of bashing them, but jokingly, obviously, because we have a lot of friends and colleagues from there. But yeah, so um, wound up at Texas A&M and graduated in four and a half years in petroleum engineering and then straight out of school, went to uh, Durango, Colorado to work there for four years in the San Juan Basin. I, I have to say, like, for areas that you can end up in oil and gas in the lower 48, like I've done pretty well, Denver and Durango, Colorado. In my, yeah, that, you know, that's, yeah, that's awesome. That is a nice it's, one. Except for a uh, 11 month stint that you referred to earlier. I did live in Midland for 11 months there, which was a fantastic experience as well. Yeah. But you weren't volunteering, you know what I mean? I'm sure it was, it was the right, the right move for you. No, I know. I mean, if you live in certain places, other places may not be appealing, but before we go on, I want to, I want to talk about SATs. So you said you got a good score. Tim, do you remember what you got on your SATs? Yes, I do, in fact. Yeah, I know what I got, too. Are we going to do this? Are we going to go out and just start throwing out SAT numbers? Should we say them at the same time? And do I lie? Do I lie or tell you the right score? (laughs) I'm trying to remember mine. Ready? Yeah, I think I'm You don't remember yours? What do you think think you got a good score on the SATs? We're all going to do it at the same time? Okay. All right. Three, two, one. 1280. 10, 10. Oh my God. You, 1280 at 13. I got 1080. <laughs> I need to quit. At least, at least we're on the same scale. I think after 13, my grade, yeah. they changed the scale to 2100. So, um, you know, it's kind of like inflation today and today's dollars aren't worth what yesterday's were, you know, kids talking, oh, I got like 1850. <laughs> I'm like, wait, that wasn't even a scale when I was there. <laughs> that wasn't even possible. So, so yeah, well, quick, quick story on the SAT thing. Cause I always found this hilarious. So one of my best friends in the world, Dan Marcus, uh, genius. He and I went to Brandeis together, but his his history with the SATs is kind of funny. So one of the gifted and talented kids, he's from New Jersey suburbs. Um, one of the programs, like they make you take the SATs when you're in like seventh grade or sixth grade or something, just to like test how far down the path you are. Anyways, he got a 1340. So when he was a sophomore, they're like, um, okay, like you did really well, you know, when you were 12. So you should come in here and take the the test because it's really good for schools, especially to get a 1600 and just get people that get that recognition. It's positive. So as a sophomore, they made him take the SATs. He's like, okay, but if you do that, then I don't need to take it next year. Usually juniors are required to take it. So he had a 1590. And he's like, that's it. I'm done. I don't need any more. They changed the rule the next year. They're like, oh, now all juniors, even if they've taken so he got a 1600 and he said he was one of like 30 kids that went to the white house or something for like some yeah. sort of dinner. And and basically he said, like, you've never seen people with worse social skills in your life <laughs> <laughs> to be a fly on the wall for that dinner. Oh, he's like, well, tell you, really what, though, you, you score a 1590. I would have to go back. I wouldn't say I'm not taking it again. I would have to go back if, if I'm that close and try. At least, but the, I don't think there was any real benefit to him. You know what I mean? Other than saying, "Oh no, that it's just pride." It. Like, it's just pure. It just, it'd yeah. be just pure pride for to, to do it. I wouldn't. It doesn't, you know, let you get accepted more to Harvard if that's where you wanted to go. It's. <laughs> I mean, he didn't get it. He didn't get into Harvard because he didn't have yeah. good grades. So, anyways, like the Colin Plackey story. So we, yeah, we I mean, it's funny. Deep. It's funny you mentioned that. I was always just really good at taking tests, and in hindsight, I didn't apply myself in high school like I could have. You know. Um, I could have been in all the AP classes and I was like, 
no, I'd rather just go get a job and make some money. You know, I got into a program my senior year where I was out by like 1 p.m. and I was working and making money after that versus taking, you know, an AP accelerated uh, math class and stuff like that. And so when I got to Texas A&M, they wanted to put me on this five year track. You know, they were like, oh, you didn't take calculus. You didn't take AP physics in, in high school. I was like, I got this. Just put me in it. And they're like, well, you can take this test. And if you do well on this test, then you can go uh, on the four year track. And of course, I did well on that test. And then I got my ass kicked that nice. first year. I mean, like I actually had to, you know, study for the first time in my life. And uh, it was it was insane. I mean, we were learning stuff in physics, like integrals and stuff like that, that I had never even learned. And they they weren't teaching yet in uh, calculus at A&M. So, you know, physics was ahead of calculus and I had a time of it, you know. So in hindsight, maybe the five year track would have been a, uh, a better way to go. But um Definitely got my eyes open that that first semester. That's a that is a, a nice moment when you have to kind of figure that out. Holy crap! And you got to establish your new pattern. How am I gonna study for this? Where am I gonna go figure out how to do this this crazy math? But man, I I can't imagine having to go through a calculus based physics class without having taken physics or taken calculus yet. Yeah, it'd be like getting into, you know, Spanish six and you haven't taken Spanish one. yet. You know? So they, they were sp literally speaking a foreign language to me. Um, and I could not wrap my head around it for for a little while. So was it Tom Blassingame? No, I do have uh, some good Tom stories. I was one of the last classes. Uh, my graduating class of 2010 was one of the last ones where he actually taught and did his All like, right. you know, Friday night, 12 hour test that he's famous for. And Well, Colin, um, I had him before he was infamous and when he was just starting out teaching i think i was in his probably third semester where he was actually teaching and we didn't have those uh seven eight hour tests at that point yeah we, he was just he was testing out his cruelty on you guys he wasn't sure how far he wasn't even wearing overalls with us what no he didn't no, wear overalls no. he was very very chill and very supportive actually people like oh this guy's tough and awesome awesome guy super supportive very smart and he gave me some very uh, apropos advice when I was showing him some of the stuff that that we were doing from an analytics analytics perspective. And he's like, don't start thinking you can drill your own wells now. OK, I know that you think you see what it looks like and you got these patterns. Don't do it. Don't do it. Stick to selling software. Like, all right. But yeah, super, no, entertaining super helpful. And, yeah. yeah. So uh, so you finish up at at A&M and then what you move back to Plano, you do something else. No, I went uh, straight to Southwest Colorado, Four Corners nice. area, and, and got to work immediately. So um, graduated in, what, December of 2010, and by January I was I was at work. So not really a, a transition or a gap year or anything like that, just um, getting right after it. Yeah, straight to Durango. Huh? Straight to Durango, yeah. So, I mean, beautiful country. Like I said, I really lucked out when it comes to the oil field. Uh, my first year I spent in the field watching rigs and everything. That was kind of uh, the company that I worked for. That was their program for training engineers was basically, you know, you you go and sit on a rig for three months. And after that, you get your own and you're going around and doing workovers. You're budgeting them. You're calling people out and kind of project managing all that. But at the same time, I'm working in a national forest. I'm kicking elk off the location in the mm. morning. You know, we had I have a great story where a bear broke into the doghouse, but through oh. the skylight. So it couldn't get out. 
And so we just have, you know, the next morning, the, the, you Man. can imagine like the look Open on the door the and get away. Face. Yeah, exactly. He has a, a bear that's been trapped in there for eight hours and it drank like all the lanolin hand cleaner. Uh, and then there's claw marks all, it was the most destroyed piece of equipment I've seen in the oil field. Um, Bears, man. and yeah, I mean, uh, cause, cause the issue there was this was in 30 and four, the Carson national forest. And whenever Durango, Farmington, Aztec, Mancus, whenever they'd have trouble bears, guess what the forest service would do? They'd throw them in a truck and take them out to 30 and four. So oh, we yeah. had all the delinquent asshole bears that, um, got <laughs> kicked out of the break city. In the houses. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So well, no, I mean, it was a fantastic place to work, man. What a great first yeah, job. Man. I mean, oh, I mean, that's got to be a great. Was that Bill Barrett? No, this was a company uh, called Energen, which sold oh. to Diamondback in 2018. Birmingham, Birmingham, Alabama. Is that one? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that was super fun getting to go back there for budget season to Birmingham. I, great. I got to interrupt here, Con, just for the, for the second podcast in a row, he's gotten to say, Birmingham, Alabama, and his his With silly accent. Alabama I, accent. I, I, I've got to be honest, which is ironically the same as my fake Texas and Louisiana accent, <laughs> Mississippi, Florida, even some places, Georgia, perhaps. Maybe not quite as slow as what I do for Tennessee, though. I don't know. You just went East Texas right there. That was uh, did, did I? No, I went Tyler. No, no. See, well, I see. It's been a yeah, while you, you since are, I went Tyler. You're, you're definitely mixing <laughs> your accents there. He lives no, I'm this. not. No, I'm not. It's going to come so, out I mean, hot this week. So San Juan, I mean, the San Juan Basin is great. So all CBM, I assume is all CBM wells, coal bed methane wells. Yeah. And, uh, and you were, what was your, what was your role out there then? So again, you know, right out of school, spent basically a year in the field watching rigs, managing that type of program. And then when I did get into the office, I was assigned a certain area and I basically handled wells in that area from cradle to grave, right? So as soon as um, the drillers were done drilling it, casing it, cementing it, it was in my, we were, we were called district engineer. So it wasn't production engineer. I wasn't completion. Like it was everything encompassed from cradle to grave. So I got to design fracks on the vertical wells, everything from production, compression, pipeline design, um, all the way to P&A. So just a really good uh, round experience. And, and it, it was nice, like, in hindsight, it's single phase gas reservoir for the most part. You know, there's some tricky stuff with coal bed methane and dewatering and stuff like that. But at the same time, really good place to learn um, all the different like the biggest thing is not necessarily like learning how to do every single thing, but understanding like how pipelines work and, and their terminology versus production engineering versus completions. And you, you get to practice it on these, uh, you know, pretty shallow decline, low pressure gas wells. And then being in Durango, it's it's, it's kind of nice from a social aspect. Just uh, hey, every weekend, just drive up in the mountains, go hike, ski, whatever you're going to do, right? Yeah, yeah, tons of days skiing. Um, everyone that I worked with, we all own jeeps, so we'd go camping up on you know the highest mountain passes you could pick. Tell Tim's ride, jealous. Durango. Tim's jealous. Yeah, it was it was a really great place to learn, and also you know working in a national forest um, right out of school it instilled in me that like. Um, you know, we have a responsibility to be good yeah. stewards of the environment and everything like that. You know, sometimes, and I'm not going to throw any basins under the bus, but you know, which ones I'm talking about where you go out to the field and there's spills and nothing's cleaned up and there's trash, rusty equipment everywhere. Like out here, um, you know, we really took pride in, in what we did and that kind of instilled a sense of uh, stewardship in me for the rest of my career after that. 
great. I mean, I'm jealous. You know, you get paid money to move somewhere like Durango, cut your teeth, right? Learn on some sort of exploratory wells where you could test some things out, which are a lot different, of course, than what you were doing when you hit the huge Permian wells, right? Which were producing, you know, a thousand plus barrels a day when they IP'd. So, so I mean, dude, Durango to Birmingham, that's got to be like four stops. Like, how do you even... What is it? Oh, Durango it to Denver? Yeah, so yeah, like- Durango, Denver, Denver, Birmingham. Sometimes you had to go through Atlanta uh, mm-hmm. in the winter time. Like if there wasn't a storm in Denver, there was a storm in Durango. It was yep. it was a nightmare to travel. And, you know, we were doing that 10, 11 times a year. Yeah. Um, so you, you, you definitely gain an appreciation for uh, single stop flights in, in larger airports because, yeah, those small planes like uh, forget about it. even even hot days in the summer. You have to think about that. Like I've been on a flight where they're like, if three people don't get off this plane, we will not clear that mountain. Yeah. And so yeah. like that was how they got volunteers to get off. You know, it was just it was the dynamic of a small mountain airport. I flew into Farmington once as one of the actually one of the, I'm sitting there looking out the window and uh, you think, well, we got another couple minutes before we land. And suddenly there was the runway. It's up on top of a mesa, just like it just out of nowhere, there's just a, a flat spot. So it's just really cool geology out there, you know, the mountains, and then, you know, any flat spot you could put a runway on. Yeah. Yeah. And those were, those were interesting flights for sure. Cause you flew on um, uh, Great Lakes, right? Which is a, a 19 seat or a, yeah, I think it's 19 seats, Beechcraft, no bathroom, which um, mm. when I first went out there and flew on that, you know, I had a few beers in the Denver airport on my layover and get on the plane and look back and it's single aisle and, and no bathroom. <laughs> I was like, this is going to be rough. I think I flew out of Albuquerque to Farmington actually. And I, I'm not sure if it was Great Lakes or not, but what I do remember was the co-pilot turned around to give the safety instruction. He turned around from yeah. his chair, didn't even stand up from his chair and gave the seat belts and the, the yeah. whole thing. Yeah. So that same like, oh, okay. trip, yeah. That same trip. There was no door between the cockpit and uh, the passenger cabin and that same trip flying back to Denver. Uh, it was just awful choppy getting into the front range. And like, I have done a lot of flying. I um, have a few hours in an airplane as well. So I'm familiar with the alarms and what, what pilots are doing and like the sheer alarms going off as we're coming into the front range. We're getting our ass kicked Aye. in this little plane. Every, everybody around me is like pale. And the best thing was like the pilot turns off the alarm and it's one of those awful sounding alarms. And then it goes off again and he turns around and just shuts the door. And so, <laughs> <laughs> and so like everybody's face around this price It's probably mine too. I don't know, but uh, that was, yeah. Like, That's a good experience. Okay. flying to the four corners, man. Yeah. You start there to you get, go. you start to get used to it. So, so what next, right? So you're in Durango, right? And maybe not your most traditional oil and gas city, right? Coming out of school. Um, th- then where'd you go? So after that, um, around 2014, the writing was kind of on the wall that Energen had, you know, purchased in 2009, 10, um, this Permian asset in the yeah. Delaware, and they were trying to figure it out. It was, you know, trying to make it be a vertical play. Uh, the Wolf Camp was, you know, a, a target, but really they were going after Bone Springs when it first started. And it was very clear that like we were competing one-on-one for capital for them. And you got to remember back 2010 through t- 2014, you know, oil is at least $70 a barrel, sometimes upwards of 130 and gas, you know, pretty flat two, two and a half, three dollars Um, So competing with capital for them just wasn't a viable option. So the writing was on the wall that they were going to 
uh, probably divest that asset there in the San Juan Basin. So I wanted to get ahead of that. I also wanted an oil experience, but I, you know, moving from Durango, I could have moved from Durango to Midland with Energen and they would have accepted me with open arms, right? But I wasn't quite ready then to leave the mountains and the Colorado lifestyle. So I started looking really hard at Denver, ended up going to um, a company called Bill Barrett. At that time, I was the lead completions engineer for their Uinta Basin asset and just, you know, perfect timing, right? For a complete shitstorm. I get there uh, in August of 2014 and yep, that's when I started. Newest, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I'm the newest guy on the team is uh, if you don't know much about the Uinta Basin, I mean, it's like break evens out there are in the 50, $60 a barrel range. So you've got to have Ew. at least 80 to 90 hundred dollars a barrel um, out there. Cause it's like, I could sit here and list everything that, that makes it so expensive to operate out there. But um, yeah, newest guy on the team, really bad break-evens. Uh, needless to say, only lasted about 15 months there before they divested the whole asset and got rid of everybody in, involved with it. Yeah. So that <laughs> was fun. Yeah. So, so yeah. So then, so Bill Barrett's like, Hey, sorry, it's early 2016. Good news for you, young man, though. Oil's $26 a barrel. So why don't you go uh, find yourself another job? And you did. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's one of those kind of career defining moments that everybody in the oil field, I think, eventually has to go through. Right. Like it's February of 2015. At that point, I've been out of work for three months, a um, few interviews here and there, nothing really stuck. And I had one interview um, with a private equity company and they kind of ghosted me for two weeks after that. So I wasn't thinking anything was going to come after it. Yeah. Right. And then um, they gave me a call on a Thursday and they were like, Hey, we've got a job for you. It's a production engineer for our, our Delaware asset. Um, only we're going to need you to be in, in Midland. And this was a Thursday. And I was like, I'll see you Monday. So I <laughs> literally packed up my car, uh, lined up a place to live, like basically over the weekend and, um, moved down and started work that Monday. So th- those are the things you just have to do in this industry. Right. Mm. Well, I'll tell you what though, in 2014, you wouldn't have been able to line up a place to live in one day. That, that was that. <laughs> luckily I had a, uh, a good friend of mine all uh, growing up, you know, all the way from middle school through high school. His little brother was a petroleum engineer, worked yeah. out there and, and um, had a three bedroom house to himself. So I uh, was able to, you know, offer him a fair price for that room and was able to move in very quickly. So that was, uh, you know, a lifesaver because, yeah, one bedroom apartments at that time were sixteen, seventeen hundred dollars a month. Holy cow. What? Holy cow. For Midland. Well, I mean, you can make a lot of money there. So I guess there's that. But I mean, come on, man. It's Midland. And no offense to anybody from Midland listening. It's just, you know, that price point, that's that's expensive. It's expensive. It it just goes to show like the simple fundamentals of supply and demand, right? I mean, there is a massive demand for housing. Nobody, if you're there for three to six months or 12 months, you're not going to buy a house. So you're going to rent. You're going to pay a premium for that, right? So does this the eleventh uh, month, eleven month uh, payout that, or, or at least uh, exit that Jeremy referred to at the beginning? Yeah, yeah. So it was just kind of, um, you know, it's funny the ups and downs of this industry. It's going to probably be a theme of this whole recording. But um, you know, you go from three months of of no work, and you know, you watch your your paycheck or your, sorry, your savings are slowly dwindling. And, and that's a lesson that we could talk about later when we get into the real estate portion of what I'm doing now. Yeah. But 
yeah, I was watching my savings dwindle down. I, I thought I had every, all my ducks in a row, had these great investments and stuff like that. The problem was I had them in the wrong, wrong investment vehicle. Mm. I had them all in the stock market. So I'm sitting here when I'm out of work, I'm selling stocks. I'm getting hit with capital gains taxes yeah. just to keep the lights on yep. versus, um, you know, what I learned later about real estate and passive income and having, uh, you know, non-correlated streams of cash flow that can come in and, and cover you when times are bad and you have to set that up when times are good. And we'll, I'm sure get into that later, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's when I first learned that lesson. And then just the sheer ups and downs, I went from, uh, you know, three months out of work, watching everything dwindle down to 11 months later, we sell this asset for $1.6 billion on the exit. And, um, you know, I didn't have any real equity in the deal, but they certainly made it worth my time to move to Midland for 11 months. Um, and, it's just funny, like the ups and downs, right? It's like extreme low to extreme high. And then you got to find a way to balance that out. And that's, that's what I'm doing today. That, yeah. Well, I want to jump into that in, in, in just a minute, because that, I think the whole heiress Kimmeridge, very, very quick exit. That's what brought you to PDC, right? And ultimately back to Denver. Um, yeah. So right. I actually did, Tim, I did some business with them, the heiress guys, um, obviously fast moving organization, right? They pick up some leaseholds, they drill a few wells, they prove it out and then boom, PDC says we, we like it. And I think has actually had some success with, uh, with that acreage, but, um, for you, right. Then you're going from, okay, well, you're going back to Denver, but you're going this time to a bigger company that's multi-basin. Um, what was, you know, coming from a, a PE backed startup by Kimmeridge, what, what was that transition like? Not only just, okay, I just moved here from Denver. Is it, hell yeah, now I get to go back. I already got a house there. Or was it, um, wow, I thought I could be at this company for a few years. Yeah, no, um, definitely. I was excited to get back to Denver, but also still work in the same asset with the same people that I had been cultivating those relationships over the past year with. So that was great. Um, PDC has a really great culture. It's a fantastic place to work. Like all the people I work with are great. Um, so that was good. And then, you know, the flip side of that is like Eris, the private equity, you know, we had 20 people doing the work of what would it take a normal company of like 150, right? So, um, there was a lot of things that didn't necessarily fit into the wheelhouse of a production engineer that you just had to do because you had to do it and it had to get done really fast, you know? So I was doing pipeline work. I was doing some, uh, some land work and stuff like that. And, um, it all, it all ended up working out. You know, it was definitely a uh, much higher stakes, like boom or bust feeling at the private equity. Like we could sell for 1.6 billion or we could flame out and go to nothing. Like, you know, the 11 other companies uh, that have acreage right next to us that literally did that um, versus us getting the timing right and, and getting that good exit. Yeah. Threading a needle for sure. Um, but a lot of people have gone on, right? I think Marty Meisner was, was over there. That was my original contact at Eris. I think he has his own company now, right? He's got his own, uh, yeah, yeah. He, kinda, he made the choice, you know, after, after working at the private equity and, and he had worked for corporations for many years and right. he was, uh, further along in his career than I was. He was perfectly happy, uh, no. passing up the opportunity to work for another corporation, um, and it's really like, it's nothing against PDC. It's just that he wanted to work for himself and he knew that he could, uh, have a lot of, a lot of growth with that track record after, uh, building Eris in the, in the Permian. Yeah. Well, it was, it was the experience with that company that really showed me how things get bought in the field because I had sold some iPad based field data capture products to, I don't know who, 
Concho or somebody else out there in West Texas, Hunt. And it was right next to uh, an Aris lease. So it hit Marty's radar, somebody else's, and they're like, hey, what's that? You got like an electronic grease sheet thing. It's like, yeah, it's an iPad and you punch information into it. You don't have to bring your handwritten, you know, grease sheet to the doghouse to get it typed up. They're like, wait, where do we order that? So it was the first time I ever got like a call from a random West Texas number like, hey, so I want to put it in order for you. I'm like, you want to put it in order? Okay. You didn't even Um, have to sell anything. (laughs) This never happened before. Okay. Yeah, sure. I can take your order, sir. But I mean, you could just tell you guys are like that. We see that it works. What does it cost? Let's go. Right. Not every operator works that way, but when you're that lean, you can. That 100%. And that's what I was going to get at is like, we could make that decision in a matter of hours and uh, the person making that decision has the authority to do so versus uh, going through committee. And I'm not saying like, like PDC is not at a size where we have a lot of bureaucracy by any means, but I see it at other companies where um, you know, there's a lot of red tape and, and bureaucracy you got to go through to make a simple decision like that. Whereas at a private equity, it's fantastic in that sense that, you know, you see something, you want it, pull the trigger, you can justify it to whoever's going to come down on you. If it doesn't work out, then uh, th- by that same token, you do have a lot more responsibility oh, yeah. uh, if, if things do go wrong, right? But, you know, it, it, that's the thing about the great thing about working at a small, fast growing company is, hey, don't bring me a problem, bring me a solution. You got a problem, go solve it. We'll worry about, we'll worry about it later. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Ask for forgiveness. Um, so, so you it brings you back to Denver. Now I want to learn a little bit about the, the, the rigs to real estate. You have a podcast, right? Yes. You got a podcast and you have obviously sort of a system where you help people in the oil field, maybe diversify their income, provide somewhat of a safety net for the ups and downs of, of the cyclical space. So you want to dive into what you got going with uh, rigs to real estate? Yeah, like I said, I mean, it all ties back to those lessons I learned when I was out of work for those couple months um, and selling stocks, getting hit with taxes. I was like, there's got to be a better way. And, and I figured it out several years later. It's one of those things where like, you're like, yeah, I've got to do something about this. And then you get busy and, and sidetracked and everything like that. But um you know, late 2018, I was starting to really think like, hey, the good times aren't going to last. And, and obviously they didn't in hindsight, but I started thinking like, there's got to be a better way that I could have um, a reliable stream of, of passive income that doesn't distract me away from my W-2 job. Uh, it's got to have tax benefits and it's got to appreciate over time and be a solid investment. And also I didn't want it tied to commodity prices in any way. And I wanted it to be something that that people physically need and housing fit every single bill of that, right? So it's got tax benefits, it's got passive uh, cash flow if you do your numbers right and, and select the market right, and we can get into that later. But um, and it also appreciates over time, and it can be relatively passive if you want it to be. So uh, I jumped headfirst into that, get, got into single family rentals, picked a market, um, and, and that's kind of one of the secrets that I tell people is you don't have to invest directly in your backyard, you know, in Denver, a $600,000 house rents for two grand a month, like those numbers do not work. Versus I found a market in Fort Worth, Texas, where I could have that uh, same house that would generate, you know, $1,400 a month in rent, and I pay 110,000 for it, you know, and so those are the type of numbers that you can start to work. However, uh, when I got into single family, I started realizing that it wasn't going to scale to meet my needs. I had certain income goals and certain timelines that I wanted to meet. And single family is fantastic uh, to get started, get your feet wet, grind your teeth a little bit. 
But for the busy oil and gas professional, and especially like the higher net worth, uh, busy oil and gas professional, I say that because if you have a higher net worth, you're going to have higher cash flow goals. Um, typically, I say if if you have a cash flow goal and you divide it by 300 bucks a month per door, and that's more than 12 to 15 doors, you need to start looking at multifamily. And that's the realization that I eventually came to was that multifamily could scale to, to meet my needs. You know, um, basically, it didn't take any more work to close on a 20 unit apartment building than it does on um, a single family house, but you get 20 doors for that same amount of, of work. So um, kind of fast forward to today, you know, I have about 2000 units under um, in that I'm a general partner on 2000 units. Congratulations, man. That's, wow. that's big time. And that's obviously like a, a very fast forward. There's a lot of growth and, and sure. stuff that happens in between there. And, and I talk about that a lot on the show. You know, I'm very, I'm an open book about what it took to get to where I was. And it's a very simple formula that you can follow and it's repeatable. Um, but the problem is a lot of people just don't know about it yeah. and they get intimidated by what they don't know. And so, you know, 2020 rolls around March, uh, April, 2020, and I'm watching friends, family, colleagues that I've known for 10 years in this industry get let go and they don't have any other options. And like their whole identity was wrapped up in their job. And I was like, man, I wish there was a way that I could just help these people and teach them, you know, what I did. And I was hmm. like, well, duh, just like start a podcast, start a blog, like tell people what I did and also have other people on the show uh, that have had success in real estate and using that to smooth out the ups and downs of the oil and gas industry. And that's where Riggs Real Estate was born. Hmm. That's good stuff, man. How, so how many, how many episodes have you done to this point? We've got about 55 right now. Hmm, nice. Um, I'm putting like putting a bank together. Um, you know, I haven't released an episode in a few weeks, but uh, putting a bank together and we'll get consistent again after that. So yeah, a lot of it, some, some are just me. Some I'm interviewing other oil and gas professionals hmm. who have real estate investments and everything like that. And others are like, you know, I've had an Amazon bestselling author economist on, uh, I have Jay Parsons coming on in a week who is the chief economist for real page, you know, billion dollar company that handles everybody's uh, uh, rent rolls and everything like that. So I'm really excited right. to have him on. So just a, a full gamut. And then I've also had people on who uh, haven't even bought their first house yet, but they want to talk about the process of what they do, what they've done to get to that point, you know? Hmm. So it's, it's a wide range. And the whole point is just like, let's get talking about this and figure out, you know, what works to help us smooth out the, uh, the ups and downs, the boomer bust of this industry. Good for you, man. So are you brokering or, I mean, how, I mean, I guess I just, you're teaching other people how to do some of this stuff, but I guess, so what's in it for you personally? I mean, obviously you've got 2000 units and so you're making, you're, you've got that happening. So is yeah. it, are you brokering for other people to help them get in or how does that work? No, no. I mean, Rick's real estate is like 100% me just wanting to give back to the oil and gas community. Um, this is a community that I love and has treated me very well over the years. So it is me just really wanting to give back and help other people out. Um, as far as like, do I gain anything from it? You know, some people, they want to invest passively in these big apartment buildings and I can help set those connections up and everything like that. Um, really what I gain from it is just knowing that if I help one person, uh, you know, be better prepared for the next downturn, then I'm going to be all for that. Right. And it, you start out with kind of these selfish goals. You know, I wanted to have passive income from my family. I wanted to be them to be taken care of and my bills to be paid 
if I lost my income overnight. And once you reach those goals, you kind of sit back and you say, huh, well, what can I do next? You know, and there's always the answer of like, well, let's make more money. Right. But you reach a point where um, I think you, you really start to think like, okay, if more money doesn't make me happy, what will? And, and helping people is really the answer for that for me. Really cool. Well, I hope to get there someday, even though you're 10 years younger than me, you've already gotten there and I haven't, I'm jealous, but at the same time, I admire your effort. No, seriously, you're, you're doing really good stuff and, and, uh, you were highly recommended for me. Um, you know, very polished for, for what you're doing. And, and personally, I, I appreciate that. You know, I think there's, there's a place to charge for services and there's a place to offer kind of insights for free based on experience. And, and I really like that you're doing that. So, you know, obviously you started side hustling in high school when you're, you know, getting off at one o'clock and going to work and do all those things. So it was always, always in there to have that, that little nugget of, Hey, I'm going to go do some other stuff on the side. Uh, the, I guess the conflict there, I'm, I'm curious and, and Jeremy knows this, but I've kind of started my own other thing yeah. and I'm not going to mention it on the podcast or maybe i will you, hold on just no, let's just go yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, all right. we'll let I'll, I'll come at the end of this little piece all right. so i'm wondering about the balance between obviously owning two thousand units does take some of your time on a weekly mm-hmm. basis and clearly your w2 at pdc i guess uh obviously takes a good portion of the rest of your time what is the balance how can you Tell, you know, if you're advising a guy like me who wants to get into real estate or own a bunch of units, what is that balance you have to be able to strike? I think there's a, a couple facets to the answer of that question. Number one, you've got to find something that you're passionate about to where it doesn't feel like work. You know, I come home from a W 2, and if I have to get on a call with an investor or an asset management call or talk to our construction guy, that doesn't feel like work to me. I really love doing that, right? So number one, find something that you're passionate about. Um, number two, people have a lot more time, um, non-productive, like NPT, if you want to use a- uh, yeah. um, a NPT, uh, NPT. Yeah, something from the industry. But it's funny. there's a lot of time in your, your afternoons, in your mornings, uh, your weekends, right? Like don't use the weekend to escape the life you have, like use the weekend to create the life that you want. And that's, if you have that kind of motivation and it's something that doesn't feel like work to you, then you, you'll be astonished at what you can accomplish on the side. Right. And, and I set very clear boundaries and um, you know, I have a lot of respect for my W2 job and I love this industry. That's a question I'm sure you guys were, were waiting to ask. Uh, a lot of people ask me that they're like, why do you even work in the oil and gas industry anymore? And really, it boils down to like, I love what I do. I love the people in oil and gas. To me, real estate was not um, like my ticket out of the industry, you know, or my ticket out of the oil and gas industry. To me, real estate was like, I'm going to hedge my bet and have some Mm. passive income and a track record that if I don't have a choice, you know, one day, whether I get to stay in the oil and gas industry or not, that at least I have set up, right? And again, it's not like like real estate isn't the end all be all. And I'll say this on the show a lot. Like um, my big thing is fall in love with finding a solution to the problem. Don't fall in love with an individual solution because solutions come and go. Right. Like real estate could come and go. Um, Solutions come and go. You've got to fall in love with finding a solution to that problem. And the problem we all have is the boomer bust nature of this industry 
it hasn't changed for, you know, you talk to guys that have been in the industry for 30 years plus, and they had guys that were, when they first broke out, 30 year hands telling them like, Hey, get ready for it, save up for it. And nobody does, you know, you still right. drive through Midland and there's like a Denali with a Malibu wake setter in front of a $40,000 house. And you're like, where are your priorities, sir? You know, <laughs> uh, none of it's paid for, you know? <laughs> oh yeah. So, yeah. um, well, it's interesting, I, since I teased it a little bit. So yeah, I don't seven, well, 2012, 13, I started looking at franchises just for fun. Cause a friend of mine had done it. And again, as a hedge, didn't pull the trigger, didn't have the guts, uh, did it again in 2015, just for, again, really just kind of putting my toe in the water. And then when the, before, before COVID even started, I was, I started entertaining the franchise consultants again. And, you know, lo and behold, I just said, you know, this is a good time to go ahead and let's, let's find something that will be some sort of protection um, that doesn't take me away from my W-2. And, uh, so I've gone and done that. I pulled the trigger. I've told uh, Jeremy about it a little bit. I probably won't, since I haven't actually opened the retail establishment yet, I'm not going to mention it yet, but it's, you know, aimed at kids and, and fitness and, and things like that. So I think it's, it, you know, it's a good, you, you, you're located in the right place. It's, it's going to work out well, but similar to what you're talking about, it's going to be something I can get behind. It's going to be fun. And, um, I think there's a lot of people in the oil and gas industry, certainly all the franchise consultants come. April of 2020 started reaching out to oil and gas executives everywhere. And yeah. uh, so yeah. there's a lot of, there's yeah. a lot of guys like me who went out and did it. Yeah. Well, and I love what you said there. And, and something that I want to kind of key in on there is a lot of people aren't willing to take the risk to start another venture or a side business or something like that. But what I say to them is like, you tell me what's riskier, you know, you wake up five years from today and you're still stuck with the same problems or you took a risk and bet on yourself five years ago and who knows where it could go. I mean, you're, you're, you're not going to get it right the first time, you know, but the point is you're, you're taking actionable steps in the right direction and you'll figure it out as you go. And you also find that along the road, it's super, super fulfilling and enjoyable. Uh, humans are like basically created to solve problems. And if you're not doing that, if you're not growing as a person, um, then, you know, you're, you're sitting stagnant and tell me what's riskier, you know? I mean, I, I like that approach. And the way that I like to, to put it is this mo money, mo problems, no money, <laughs> no, no money, way mo problems, way mo problems. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it comes back to, you know, you asked like, do I get any money off the Riggs real estate podcast? It's like, no, that is fulfilling for me in a different way. Um, Cause you start to realize, you know, money doesn't solve all your problems and the people who chase the almighty dollar to the day they die, you know, they die typically lonely and miserable. So you got to enjoy the journey the whole time. Oh, there you go. Indeed, man. That was, that was a great way to close it down. My man, Colin Plackey, uh, PDC production engineer, also rigs to real estate. Where can people find your podcast and, and follow you and all that good stuff? Yeah. So the Riggs to Real Estate podcast, you know, anywhere where you consume your, wherever you're listening to this right now, you can find us. So just search Riggs to Real Estate podcast. We're on iTunes, Spotify, all the big names there. Uh, I have a big presence on LinkedIn. I'm always posting what I think is valuable content. It seems to get good uh, feedback from from people in the yeah, industry. That's so good stuff. That's good stuff. I'm always, always willing to help anyone that wants to get started, whether it's real estate or not. Like I said, fall in love with finding a solution to the problem, not necessarily 
an individual solution. So do reach out to me. I have a lot of content out there to help people get started in real estate, you know, selecting your market. If you want to go the passive route, we can talk about that um, because it's a fantastic way for busy professionals to get their feet wet and kind of learn while you earn. And it goes back to what I described earlier. If you've got to find a, something that you're passionate about and you may find you're not passionate about real estate, but if you made a passive investment, you're at least going to make good money on your uh, or good returns on your investment. And you can learn whether or not you have a passion for it and, and, and get a kind of insider view on the industry at the same time. So yeah, reach out to me. I'm happy to help any and everyone that, that uh, reaches out. Appreciate that, my man. Thanks for coming on, Colin. Yeah, appreciate it, guys. Enjoyed it. See you, buddy. Bye.